Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. So, Anya, what did we watch? Well, Skipper, we just watched Blondes at Work, the fourth Torchy Blaine film in the series. Indeed we did. (laughs) We got to work with Blondes at Work. They're very peculiar movies. Where do we even begin with this one? Where do we begin? Well, I guess we should start off with trying to describe the central mystery in this one. Which seems to be, and I may be wrong here because it was a little hard to follow. To say yes, I was completely confused. They may have buried the lead in this one, folks. There's going to be a lot of journalism puns from here on out, so buckle up. 
they it seems to be about so Torchy Blaine, of course, if you've listened to our past episodes on this series, is the uh, blonde haired star reporter for the star. Um, and she's just always getting scoops from her curmudgeonly boyfriend, Steve McBride, who fails to make her a bride in several movies. They keep attempting to get married. It keeps going bad. Here, here we, it's, a, it's the original will they won't they thing. And she's desperate to get him to buy her steaks. Yeah, that's her real priority, which I respect a lot. Uh, it's a bizarre running gag. It's, I think it adds a lot of character and I love it, Kevin. You love these movies. I love these movies. They're so fun. I'm a reporter. I love the kind of bizarre take on journalism. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like watching something you love through like a distorted mirror. <laughs> You're kind of getting glimpses of it, but it's not right. And um, and then of course we we have to introduce a uh, reintroduce uh the the famous beloved character of Officer Gehagen, who is McBride's police officer friend slash butler <laughs> he's not really doing investigations all he's doing is like serving mcbride and driving him around which i never understood that <laughs> i just i guess back in those days some people were detectives some people were detectives butlers <laughs> are the police so overstaffed they have men to spare to be the gentleman's gentleman for their detectives <laughs> Yeah, it's a very odd picture of how policing works. But anyways. What's the central mystery? Central, I've watched the movie. Yeah. I'd like to know what you, I would just watch. You just watched the movie a few minutes ago, too. And we, we I'm going to try to get it right. Basically, uh, it's a retail mystery. Now, that's a subject near and dear to my heart as a retail reporter. You know, finally, we're seeing my stuff. This is the kind of shit I write about. <laughs> Not really. Um, a retail magnate, the, uh, I guess, CEO slash president operator of the Bonton department store, which, side note, we're going to digress a little bit here. That was a real retail corporation. I think it went out of business recently, but I recognize the name. There's a Wikipedia article. I'm not going to subject you, Kevin, and our listeners to some recap of that Wikipedia article, but... It's kind of weird that they picked a real department store name to to have be the have be the central mystery here. Wouldn't that be a little? Isn't that? Am I just? Am I the only one? Is that weird? Doesn't it add a touch of? Doesn't it add a touch of realism to the proceedings? But if you have your like, if I wrote a story with the CEO of you know Kroger being at the heart of like some sleazy mystery, wouldn't everyone be like that was kind of weird? <laughs> Some steamy love triangle with the with the CEO of Albertsons. I mean, like, could this have been like a product placement, nineteen thirty eight style? Oh man, Bonton, the Bonton Corporation came in and was like, you know what? We want you to fucking off our boss as part of our media campaign to seem more relevant to today's youth. Put him in the put him in some sleazy love triangle with some models and some other rival businessmen and have him die in mysterious circumstances. No, 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 wouldn't that be a pretty good strategy in today's viral world? You know, you're always trying to get somebody's attention. You know, the the PR team uh, came back triumphantly to the boss and was like, "Wow, we got a way more engagement with this campaign." And the Torchy Blaine series really set us aside. And he's like, Haha, "Yeah, you're all fired." <laughs> Their big idea <laughs> was to write fan fiction about their boss. 
it's quite a it's quite a daring move from these from these madmen before their time. But yeah, no, I anyways. So <laughs> we we're already off the rails and it hasn't even gotten started, which is pretty much how this movie feels. Basically, the Bonton CEO is found is goes missing. He goes missing first. And then it turns out he was murdered. He's found stabbed to death. Who killed him? Who could have killed this creepy guy who, you know, was like having affairs with models and had a bunch of, and was, you know, drunk a lot, was a total drunk and always fought other men. Who could have done it? Whenever we find out, I hope we find out in the least dramatic way possible, almost as an afterthought. Almost like it's off screen. (laughs) But let's, we're getting ahead of ourselves. This movie has its own interests and it is not the mystery. (laughs) This movie has its interests, which are like, just like, Banana peel shenanigans, people slipping on banana peels, basically, and banter between different characters, which I respect. I respect that. I think the big story is that uh, McBride's superiors are furious that he's giving too many stories, too many exclusive, too many scoops, if you will, to his lady friend, Torchy. Right. And so he promises he's going to stop giving her any information whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Code of silence. And so she retorts that she's going to stop giving him any information whatsoever. Because, if, again, if you've listened to the previous episodes we've done on the Torchy Blaine series, she solves most of these mysteries. It's not the cops. She just comes in and solves it. So it's kind of like Lestrade being like, Sherlock, I'm not going to involve you anymore in these mysteries and Sherlock being like, well, then you don't get my help and like some dumb shit happening. And his boss is like, you know, obviously you can talk about things other than what is, what does the boss say? Oh, <laughs> the boss has a, quite a quote because I, I kind of feel like it's relevant to our lives. Kevin, uh, the quote is as followed. I wrote it down. We actually rewound it several times to understand what this guy's fake ass Irish accent was even saying. Can't you lovebirds find something to bill and coo about besides murders and bank robberies? Sorry about the Irish accent, folks. But, you know, I can do that because I am Irish. That is, yeah, that's what he says. That sounds like somebody talking about you and me, Kevin. That's all we talk about is bank robberies. We we talk about murders quite a lot. We have a, we have a podcast called The Murder Sheet. So this pretty much could have been directed at us. I felt personally attacked, frankly. I stood up and walked out of the room when this came on. It was quite a sight to see. <laughs> Felt like he was talking directly to us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you can't talk about cool shit with your honey, what's the point? But so now they're going to give up talking about the cool stuff. They're just going to talk about lovey-dovey stuff. Yes. And so they're going to... And basically, but then, like, if if we were going to see, like them try to do that, that would be one thing. But basically the movie has them mostly separate except for a couple of collision points because McBride is just completely avoiding Torchy in this one. He, he realizes that that's the only way to not give her scoops. So what do you think? that it, Does that play well in terms of the story to have your two romantic leads separate? I, they weren't separate that much because they had some collision points, but he was very much actively trying not to be around her, which I think definitely dampens the romantic spirit and i think it's kind of sad because you realize if this were happening in real life these characters just could not be together because their careers are too different or they'd have to change their careers which they both seem to enjoy well couldn't like torchy like cover crime at another department a precinct 
Couldn't he be transferred to another precinct? We have no idea how big this city is. Then maybe there's only one department. Did w- didn't we see in a previous movie there's the, the, like other crime reporters on the beat? So obviously those guys are all. I want to note those guys are all gone in this movie. So apparently they all got fired, or there was some like dramatic like 2008 esque, you know, newsroom bloodletting going on. Because Muggsy from the previous film, my favorite character in this whole goddamn franchise, is just. Throwing out on his ass. With the way of the Yetzel. Yeah, just devastating. I wanted them to establish Muggsy as the <laughs> bizarre character coming in and causing chaos in the journalism world. You were hoping for like a Muggsy franchise, a yeah. Muggsy spinoff. I wanted like what a, would that have been like? Like a Muggsy style, like Sean Hobbs situation. Just give him his own movie. Let him go nuts. Um, yeah, I would have just. Well, like Muggsy teams up with somebody who killed his best friend. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly what I want. Muggsy's best friend gets gunned down investigating a scoop, and then he and the gangster accused of doing the killing have to team up because they have common enemies, bigger enemy that they need to take care of. I'd watch that picture. And then then, then Dom Toretto comes in and talks about how everyone's a journalism fib. he'd, He'd come in at the end, he'd come in and he'd say, he'd be like, he'd talking about how it's, I don't got a newspaper, I got family. It'd be like Dom's like great grandfather. I'd watch the shit out of that. That seems like AI got in my brain and made a movie. No, the first time that's happened. <laughs> that's just, every night it sucks. Very stressful. Yeah, it's it's so so it's one of those it's one of those keep the leads apart kind of movies. Um, it there I felt like they had some really good quips in this one. I'm gonna give them. I'm gonna give the writers. Like, the plot is terrible. <laughs> I couldn't make head or tails of the plot. It doesn't make any sense. and it's, The story structure also, I want to mention, is <laughs> terrible. Just terrible. But there were some quips. That's, what we're, that's, why, that's why you and I are here. That's why we're all here. We're here for the fucking quips. It's a Torchy Blaine film. So you got to give them credit. They had some great quips. Hit me with one of these, these allegedly great quips. Oh, I'll pull up my computer and figure it out. Pull up my old typewriter. See, everything I say is going to sound much less cool because I'm much less cool than Torchy. You're pretty cool. So people are going to be like, oh, well, that sucks. Torchy at one point says, I've got ink in my blood and a nose for news, and that needs something besides powder. Sounds like somebody, that that would be her, that would probably be her try hard Twitter bio nowadays, but it sounded cooler with her just throwing it off the cuff. <laughs> Nowadays, you'd look at that and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and at one point, when they're arguing about Torchy's penchant for writing stories that could jeopardize McBride's job, he says, you're going to cook my goose. And she says, we'll have to fatten it up and cook it for dinner. <laughs> and he just says, ugh. <laughs> Sounded like a typical conversation between us, frankly. Yes. You say things that just leave me saying, ugh. All the time. All the time. Just it's your catchphrase now. So, you know, that was, you know, there's some good quips. I enjoyed the quips. Uh, there's some very bizarre, hilariously bizarre moments. And there's, I don't know if you want to get into this now. There's Let's a, get into it. Get Dive right in. There's a lot of very unethical behavior by Miss Blaine. Okay, but I, I hear you. 
I hear you, and I know what you're talking about because you're talking about. I'm stuff. not even sure you do because no, there's a I, long list. I know what you're. There's talking a long about. list. Why don't you? Why don't you sit down and let me? I'm gonna tell you what I think, and then I'm gonna say, but it takes a turn. It takes a turn at a certain point. Through the first half, this is like maybe the first half of the movie. You're almost like in previous episodes we've talked about how bad of a journalist Tor she is because she's getting all she's like basically sleeping with a cop and that's how she gets all her information. There's no pretty way of saying that it's bad. And also he's leaking all this information to her. It, it's just a disaster. And she's also always doing stuff like impersonating a police officer. She's breaking the law basically. And it goes beyond just like I'm a journalist with Moxie. It's like no, this is just total bad ethics. Just a bad situation. In this one, she's bad in the beginning. It's bad. But also, Steve's police captain is also bad because he's really committed to just throwing all the scoops to the Express, which is their rival paper. And he seems more focused on making sure that the Express gets the scoop than doing any fucking shit regarding the people who are getting murdered all over town. And it's like, what do they have like nudes from you? Like what dude, what is going on? He's constantly yelling at Steve that the express, he's not saying like, Oh, we need to give other people a chance. He's saying the express needs its pound of flesh. And if they don't get it, you know, we're all dead. And it's like, what, what's going on? What's happening, what do man? You, don't you as a reporter kind of like to have the police and the sources being such fear of you? Like, if we don't give this scoop to the insider, our goose is cooked. No. Well, I mean, I want people to give me scoops, but, like, but what's going I, I want to know the, I don't want to, there's another movie happening here with the chief and this other, and this express editor that we're not even, we're barely privy to, and that's hap, that's drama happening on the side, and I kind of want to, like, what is going on there? He's desperate. He's, like, foaming at the mouth every time Torchy gets the scoop, and it's not, be, like, you don't get the sense he, he's, like, pals with the editor, because the editor will call him up and be like, hey, what's going on? And you're like, <laughs> oh my god, what the fuck is happening in this city? You know, so... In the beginning, with that guy as her foil, it's kind of like, uh, everyone's being unethical. Later on, <laughs> later things happen, and then you're like, Torchy's like the most unethical journalist in fictional history. But but for a while there, she's it's kind of balanced out by other people doing bad shit. And even before we get into the main unethical things she does. That's what people say about me all the time when they're discussing my journalism. <laughs> weird to hear that in this context well she, she torchy really early on starts actively compromising the investigation well why be a journalist if you're not going to do that because like, like mcbride and his bosses at one point say let's keep this particular bit of information from the public in order to protect our investigation and meanwhile torchy's blasting it all over the front pages because she happened to trick and manipulate a rookie police officer and giving her some information he shouldn't have given her. But that's just the beginning. Do you want to... Let's get into it. Let's talk about the diary. Oh, God. This made me want to... Oh, Jesus Christ. So, Gahagan, we mentioned him. Everybody's favorite poetry-spouting Irish cop who is just the butler for McBride, basically. That's his function. That's They don't call him a butler. He's a butler. <laughs> And he tells Torchy that he's been keeping a diary around the time when she and Steve say that they're both going to go their own ways for this investigation. So she says basically something like, you can make a lot of money if you write down everything that Steve McBride does and then you could sell it as a book later. So he starts doing that. And then 
he <laughs> he shows her in the car where he keeps his diary and he he even hands her a key which she quickly presses into a mold to uh get the you know get a separate key made so she can access it and it's basically like a do-do-do-do-do, you know kind of like thing so she's like breaking into this guy's private thought it this, this is so sad she's she's <laughs> illegally breaking into his car and reading his private diary without his permission or approval and then using that information to get scoops. He's a big dumb lug and we love him, but also what the hell, Torchy? And one thing I didn't understand, because that's awful ethics. Oh, God. Yeah, that's that's not, that's just unethical. I mean, that's just, you, you can't do what, that. What would happen <laughs> if, if you went, if, if you went to your editor and said, guess what? I ran into Jeff Bezos on the street, happened to be carrying some mold with me. I made a copy of his key. I can now <laughs> break into his car. I'm pretty sure he has a diary hidden in the glove compartment. What do you say? I think there'd be a lot of nervous laughter <laughs> because like that certainly does not sound like a plausible scenario. It'd be more like I, I, I got it thumbprint and now i copied it and i'm gonna break into the spaceship and go to space first <laughs> would be more likely more likely coming from me frankly but um i i think yeah i think if there were, if i were talking about stuff that were was blatantly illegal and dishonest and corrupt i think my editors would be like no you're not doing that and if i did it they'd be like you need to leave <laughs> wouldn't they even if you just suggest that I think when they look at you differently. Yeah, even if I just did it as a, I mean, I think if I, I obviously did it as a joke, maybe they'd be like, haha. But like, I think if I was like seriously, like, guys, we should do this. Come on, they'd be like, no, just like, yeah, it would, it would not be good. Putting it on the insider Slack. <laughs> I mean, you know, in journalism, you know, you're supposed to be maybe a little bit clever, a little bit tricky, a little bit ruthless, right? But you're not supposed to just, like, blatantly trample over every, like, obvious uh, right and wrong <laughs> to, to get what you want. Because it's sort of like if if you get if you get things in a really shitty, unethical way, it's going to blow up in your publication's face and everyone's going to be like, you stole that from a man's diary. That's horrible. And, and you know, it, it's going to be bad. It, like, you shouldn't just get things honestly. I mean... She hangs out around the fucking police station enough. She should have more sources than just McBride, for starters. And there's also people in different offices that aren't the police that she could also uh, cultivate as sources who might be maybe like the coroner's office or like, you know, maybe there's a county sheriff or something. You know, like there's she she just she's a terrible journalist. <laughs> she's terrible. I hate to say it from my girl Torchy, but she's. She's got the spirit and the spunk of a good reporter, but the writers always have her doing stuff that's, like, really heinous. Like, imagine if, like, you watched a show about a doctor and, like, the doctor just, like, anytime someone got out of line, the doctor, like, just punched them in the face, you know, in order to make them take the good medicine. Like, that's basically what it is. And then I, I didn't understand something about the logistics and the process of it. At different points, we see Gahagan's diary. Very short entries, just a few sentences. And like one might say, McBride is looking to investigate Anya. 
And then, like, the next day we see a big headline, police investigate Anya. And then there's, there's like, a big story underneath it. Like, what's that story? I'm not going to answer any questions without my lawyer present. Because literally all the information in the diary was conveyed in the headline. Yeah. Clickbait. (laughs) In the 1930s. So, So is that what it is? It's just, that's all they have is one line. I guess that bothered me. Doesn't bother. I guess that's part of the business. <laughs> I'm looking at you blankly. <laughs> that's part of the business. You have a really flashy headline without a lot of a lot of sizzle underneath. Oh, that's shocking to <laughs> I've me. I've never done that. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's like print tabloid stuff is different. Uh, the whole thing is just a mess. She would be fired immediately if she pulled any of this anywhere that I'm aware of. Even you know. You just, you can't do this. This is like, this is like English tabloid shit. This is like that phone hacking scandal with News of the World. But it's going to get worse. But yeah, it's actually going to get worse than that, which was a real travesty. (laughs) So we're going to, we're going to go past actual news scandals. We're like, we're just going to go nuclear in terms of. Because frankly, what she does at this point, stealing the diary, that's awful. That's unethical. I could imagine a reporter doing that. I could imagine, especially a 1930s reporter, when, like, the, the reporters, like, were, we, the, the, in certain cities, they were going into crime scenes and planting evidence to write a story about. I mean, it was the Wild West internal, it, there, there wasn't really, the, the professionalization of the uh, craft hadn't really happened yet. I sound so fucking pretentious. The professionalization of the craft. But you know what I mean. Like, it's, it was... Thing, people were just doing shit. Some people were doing some good stuff. Some people were doing some terrible stuff. A lot of in-between stuff. But this is within the realm of potential things that could happen. Yeah, we're, not, we're about to get crazy, though. <laughs> and even now, things similar to this could happen. Uh, a lot of reporters, for instance, ran in the 2016 presidential election. They ran a lot of emails that had been stolen. So it's like... Reporters seem to think it's okay to run stolen information as long as they don't personally steal it. Right. Yeah, as long as you're getting the handoff. <laughs> so this isn't too far out there. This is pretty far out there. I think I also I don't think a lot of people would have like I don't think a lot of reporters could have like tricked Clinton staffers into sending bad emails in the first place with the with the intention of writing a book about it later. Have you met Mark Penn? <laughs> Oh, but yeah, the, the, Jesus. One thing I want to talk about, though, because we mentioned that they're apart for a lot of this movie. What did you make of the relationship between old Torchy and old Steve in this in this uh, edition? I know earlier episodes we said that they're in previous movies, their relationship kind of felt kind of bad because like Steve seemed really mean to Torchy in a way that was kind of like unsettling. How did you feel about it in this movie? Uh... Absolutely no romantic chemistry at all. To me, they seem more like a very competitive, like brother and sister, like wanting to one up the other all the time. No, no, like no chemistry at all. To a almost startling, she had more chemistry with the older cop who was tailing her later on. She had more chemistry with the rookie cop who is like kind of like she interacts with the beginning of the film. Basically he gives her a ticket or something and she's trying to get out of it. And it's like, I'm going to marry your boss. At one point she finds a dead body. She has more chemistry with him. <laughs> this, the Steve Torchy thing. I actually thought the young cop did a good job of like capturing the 
like I'm annoyed with this woman, but I also think she's kind of hot. Whereas Steve just seems like like looks at her like she's like an like he's like a retail clerk and she's a really annoying customer. I mean, it's like it's not there. Yeah, I could almost see a brother and sister thing. So it's that's odd. Yeah, at one point late in the picture, uh, they haven't seen each other for a while, and he says he's Mister, and it's like that's hard to believe. I don't believe he's Mister. Buddy, at all. you just had the best five days of your life. <laughs> Like, it's just weird. Like, you know, like you think of like, you know, you think of what like a pair with chemistry could have done with this and it would have been like, you know, and maybe better writing could have had another Nick and Nora situation where it's just like iconic couple solving mysteries, sometimes at odds. But alas, (laughs) we we have what we have. (laughs) But yeah, I was like in the beginning, I was like, is she supposed to be flirting with this cop? (laughs) Well, the other cop, I, I kind of, it felt like she was flirting with him. You know, she basically blackmails him into helping her later because, you know, he, like, dinked a hydrant or something. And let, let, let me ask you, do you think if she thought that flirting with the other cop or even getting romantic with the other cop would help her get a story? She wouldn't hesitate to do it, would she? <laughs> She'd do anything for a scoop. What, what, what are you looking at me like that for? <laughs> Why are you blushing? What? <laughs> you turned bright red. Oh my god! We're gonna after this. We're gonna need to kind of have a conversation oh yeah, later. We're gonna have a serious discussion. I it's long overdue. Oh my god! <laughs> You're no McBride. You're more of a Gahagan. <laughs> Reciting poetry and getting duped into. <laughs> and you're no Torchy. You're not even a Mugsy. Oh, I'm a Mugsy, all right. No, no, you're not a Mugsy. Yes, I am. Maybe I, a Maxi. I'm a fucking. Oh, yeah, I I actually like Maxie. Maxie is Torchy's eccentric editor who is always seems to be either wearing weird glasses or like a oversized hat. That's me. That's me. That's everyone who knows me knows that's me. Every I mean, that that's the kind of energy I like to kind of give off just like a frazzled old timey newspaper editor who's maybe like a few bad pieces of news away from just throwing myself out a window and huge hats. The first huge time I hats. saw you, you were in a Carmen Miranda. hat. Lots of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a good one. I like Maxie. Uh, at one point, uh, two cops hear Torchy say itsy bitsy. To Steve. And then they say it in unison, which we're going to do right now. One, two, three. Itsy bitsy. <laughs> See, I preferred in the previous movie where all the reporters went all out and making fun of Gehe- uh, making fun of, of McBride about having a woman who loved him. In, in that they would literally, like, they bought rice at a store. They bought loose rice at a store, white rice, brought it into the police station, and showered him with it as he walked by. That's That's making fun of somebody. Saying itsy bitsy at the same time is weak in comparison. Uh, there's some interesting public officials in this picture. Tell us about the coroner. The coroner is a weird looking guy. It looks kind of like James Joyce. Was that just me? I saw it too. Yeah, James. <laughs> so this veritable Dubliner is a, he does not have an Irish accent, but um, he does have like the white hair and the gla- little glasses. And he's going on and on about on the phone about something. And, like, you just get, like, they reveal he's the coroner eventually. But at first you're like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> this guy's, like, bursting into the movie. Yeah, I wish there were more newspaper stuff. Because, like, I do enjoy it, like, in these movies. They always have it be, like, basically every other reporter in town hates Torchy. Because she's constantly scooping everyone. And I could see that happening in real life. You know, be- jealousy on the beat. But 
I think it's more than just jealousy. Is it's like if you were an athlete and you had moderate success as an athlete, and then someone else in town was consistently outshining you, and you knew they were doping, you knew they were doing steroids, you knew they were acting unethically, you would hate them, and you'd have reason to hate them. I'm going to tell you this, Kevin. So that's in the real world, yes. But this is more like all these reporters, they're never saying that's unfair or that's unethical. You shouldn't, you know, sleep with a source or we don't think, you know, uh, you know, you should run that because that was obtained unethically. Everyone's just like, we wish we could do that. It's basically like you're pissed off at the other athlete because they won't tell you where they got the really good steroids. And you have to use just like lame ass steroids. Nobody's standing up and being like, we're journalists. This is a profession. You need to fucking take this seriously and do ethics and like figure your shit out and not print stuff like that. They're just, they just wish they could do it. The, I do, I, that is true, but I will note that in this picture, we'll get to it later, Torchy does face consequences for some of her bad acts. Toy, torch, torchy is. Toichi? Toichi. Jeez. I'm becoming Maxi. Oh no! It's my a big hat has just appeared from nowhere and fallen on my head. I don't know what's happened to me, Kevin. Help me. Toichi. Kevin with tears in his eyes loads a gun. <laughs> Going to that big newspaper office in the sky. The big typewriter in the clouds. Thirty. Jesus Christ! What's happening? Oichi. Um, I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, my God. I will say, you know, we're talking about, you know, the manic energy of, of this film. We, uh, Gehagen. I was a little worried about him in this one. He seemed a little bit more subdued. And most of the scenes were of him just, like, sitting around or standing still. I hope he was okay in this one. I know this man is long dead, the guy who played him. He was like a silent movie actor. <laughs> but but I just was like, oh, no. Because <laughs> in this one, like, in previous ones, Gahagan would be walking around, following people. And, you know, in this one, he was kind of a little bit more quiet. And he they had some other cop named Parker follow Torchy around. So I was a little bit, oh, hope Gahagan's okay. He's a great part of the movie. I just love that. I just love, like, the weirdness. Like, he'll... There's, there was one scene that I really liked with him in it. I felt like it was... So, you know, McBride has sworn Gahagan and Parker, who's the cop who ends up tailing Torchy, to secrecy. And it's like, you can't tell Torchy. You can't tell anyone about this key information about the case. And I'll know it was either one of you if, you know... It gets to the newspapers. So, of course, in the in the morning, he's like, nothing happened. Da, da, da. And then, of course, you hear the star edition, like, extra, extra. That thing you didn't want in the newspaper is now <laughs> on the headline. And, of course, McBride is pissed off. And he runs over. He stomps over. He's like, grabs a newspaper from the newspaper boy. Stomps back over. And what does Gahagan say? He says, did you buy one for me, chief? <laughs> That's the kind of dumb guy question that I would ask <laughs> Like totally misinterpreting the whole vibe, totally misinterpreting the situation and just being really concerned. Like I want my morning news. I want to be informed. Oh God. I love it. <laughs> and you had really aggressive, whimsical music at like comedic points in this film. And it'd be like, like, uh Oh, Torchy. <laughs> Very aggressive. 
They wanted you to know we were having a fun fucking time here. <laughs> You're like, Torchy Gahagan killed himself because you printed his diary. Ba-doo-ba-doo. <laughs> Maybe we should take that out. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Oh, God. Now, other than Gahagan, there were other supporting characters I believe you took a shine to. Like there was a uh, fashion designer at the store. Oh, I mean, I was like, that was pretty bad offensive. But, I mean... It was less offensive than the uh, Asian... Uh, oh, God, yeah. Guy at the laundromat. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, you know, that's the problem with watching these old films. You know, you're kind of coming into it and then, you know, you're you know having a fun time. Everyone's being wacky. And then then somehow they like get some just bad stereotypes in there and you just like cringe inwardly. But yeah, there was a guy I think I believe was supposed to be gay uh, fashion director for the Bon Ton store <laughs> and they had him doing all these things and you're like, oh, yikes. Um and then there was it. Yeah, at one point, this fashion designer, he's instructing models on how to walk in their outfits. And he said, no, if I could fit into one of those frocks, I could show you a thing or two. And you just, at that point, you, you buried your head in your hands and you were moaning and saying, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the only reaction you could give something like that, where it's like very much they're, they're, they're getting at something and you're like, okay. Just, uh torchy disappointing I, I can't believe there's a, a scene we completely forgot to do we black this out what was it this was the scene where they take uh, a handkerchief with lipstick on it to a store clerk oh god oh god i hate tell us about scene. that scene this was the other racist scene i knew we missed something um so yeah they find something they find like a handkerchief with lipstick on it take it to a clerk and for somehow she is able to be like, this person who would have worn this would have been a fancy lady and a dark brunette, maybe Spanish. And it was like, oh, God, what the fuck is happening? This weird eugenicist lipstick lady. Just from looking at a smear of lipstick. That was an odd scene. I forgot about that. And then everyone's obsessed with this lipstick. They're all like, they, oh, this person would, she would be very dark, you know. And it was like, okay, this this part of the movie is making me feel uncomfortable. I think that's why we blocked it out. They, uh, the, the other bad one was, it was kind of sad because like it was like they had a, a a person running a laundromat who is an Asian man, and he, like, actually had like a nice vibe. He was like nicely dressed and he was like very friendly, but they kept on making him use words like honorable or unworthy, and it was like they actually had this like good actor who had a good vibe and was like kind of bantering with Torchy, but they like had to go and ruin it by like. You know, like, they're like, oh, this can't just be a nice interaction without, like, race being a huge thing. He's got to, A, be in charge of a laundromat, and he's got to use all these, like, stereotypical words and jargon. And it's like, ah, jeez. Old movies, they'll just... Break your heart. Yeah, well, we're having a fun time. And, like, listen, like, I mean, it's not not as as any of this stuff is remotely subtle. (laughs) not this is all i in retrospect that's bad it was like it's like very much in your face just ridiculously bigoted embarrassing the 1930s not just the 30s uh the other day we were watching something that wasn't even a mystery it was a cartoon from 1970 and it had some stereotypes that shocked us oh the aristocats yes you my husband are gonna get on this podcast episode and just drop to everyone that we were 
as adult people watching the aristocrats on a, on a night. The aristocats. The aristocats. That's what I said. You said aristocrats. Oh, well, that's a different thing. That's your comedic documentary. But no, that that's an interesting choice, Kevin. <laughs> it's a fascinating glimpse into our lives. We talk about murders and then we watch cartoons. We sound like very disturbed, depraved people, actually. <laughs> you know, there's some truth to that. I think I would be more scared to hang out with, like, Disney adults than, you know, people who are obsessed with crimes. <laughs> but with us, you get the complete yeah, package. Yeah, you get everything. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I also like comic books. Crickets? No, it's <laughs> What do I like? Jamestown? Colonial Jamestown. Good, good time. So yeah, you, you, I remember speaking of that, you were telling me the other day that you were stunned by how accurate Pocahontas the cartoon was. Oh, get the... You you felt that it, it rendered the, the history perfectly. I said no such thing. <laughs> or did I, did I misunderstand? Get out of here or you will be held in contempt. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this, this film, you know, like when... when Jesus. I don't know. I think I enjoyed it. Aside from the harmful stereotypes and aside from some of the harmful stereotypes about journalists as well. You know, I think it had some fun moments. It it, it was not as, like, I feel like the first two really struggled to hold my interest. This held my interest. I didn't know what the fuck was happening, though. So say say what you will. This, This did not hold my interest. There was some banter at the beginning I enjoyed, and then there was some moments later in the picture where there was like, what the fuck moments. One was that the cops arrest, uh, so basically they, the, a theory of the case begins to form. They realize that this retail exec was obsessed with this young woman, a model at his store named Louisa, and so was a guy named Mr. Greer, who I guess was some other rich, rich mustache guy. All right. There's a dime, there are a dime a dozen in 1930s movies. There's always a rich mustache guy. And he comes in, and they're fighting. Uh, the retail guy and the mustache guy, they're fighting. And, uh, you know, so they qu- they quarreled over this young woman. So at some point, the mustache guy is arrested because they're like, you had a motive to kill the retail executive. And he's like, I want to talk to my lawyer. And then McBride says, like, lock him up and don't let him talk to his lawyer. Like, oh, yeah, fuck the Constitution. What the hell? Was, <laughs> was that even legal in the 30s? Technically, no, but I'm sure in practice, things like that happened back then. I was appalled. You got and walked out. I, I, I was walking out a lot in this thing. <laughs> got a lot of exercise. Yeah, no, the, the uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was interesting. But most of the, I mean, that happens, and that's certainly not the most unethical thing that happens in this film. <laughs> it's not even in the top ten. Should we get to the trial? Or is there anything we should talk about before we get to the trial? Uh, there was a scene that made you say, oh my God, before the trial, where Torchy goes into a room with two women, one of whom is the woman in the case. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. I, I blacked that. I think I blacked out at that point. Oh man. Okay. Let's talk about, and imagine just... Imagine if this were me or like any modern day journalist if this happened. Can I tell it? Tell it. I'm gonna tell it. Do I, it. All right. I dare you. Torchy tracks down she tracks down Louisa, the woman at the heart of the case. 
and she, Louisa, and I guess her mother or friend or sister or colleague, colleague, um, are hanging out at the colleagues or whatever this other woman's apartment, and Louise is going to get out of town on a boat the next morning, and the other woman opens the door and finds Torchy crouching there, eavesdropping, which is like pretty bad already. But you know, would it even work? What eavesdropping? If you close the door and I stand on the other side and crouch down by the keyhole, am I am I ever going? Am I going to hear anything? So you weren't tying your shoelace at the front door, were you? I was trying to figure out what the hell you were doing in here. <laughs> and like I don't know, I but I I I, I it's besides the point. So they bring her in, and the other the woman pulls a gun on Torchy and holds her at gunpoint. And tells Louisa to start packing because she's going to get out of town that night. And Torchy's like, I'm not a cop. I'm a journalist. You should talk to me and tell your side of the story. Yada, yada, yada. I've definitely, I definitely pulled the tell your side of the story thing before. So that was accurate. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you should put your, you know, your own side out. Because if it goes out without your side, then that doesn't really do you any favors. So yada, yada, yada. She asks the woman holding her at gunpoint for a cigarette. The woman gives it to her. Then Tor- Torchy burns the woman on her hand that's holding the gun with the cigarette. The woman screams. Torchy grabs the gun and then holds her at gunpoint. And okay, like at that point, if you're a journalist who got held at gunpoint, you know, you should do what you can to get out of that and rescue yourself. And like, if that means holding these people at gunpoint, okay. The story's gone wrong. You're going to be taken off the story because now you're becoming part of the story. But at least you survive. But then what happens next is the thing that made me black out and say, oh my God, and all that stuff. What does she do, Kevin? You you don't remember. You blacked out too, apparently. I don't remember. She interviews them at gunpoint. Well, now you've done that. <laughs> Haven't we all? Get a big shotgun, big jug of whiskey, ask a few questions, wrap it up, record it, put it on Rev for transcription. I've listened to some of your interviews with the chairmen of the board. Don't tell me there's no gunfire involved. There's a pause in between questions and you just hear a click and the person starts talking again. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was pretty bad. To to coerce an interview in any sense, in terms of like, if you don't talk to me, then I'm going to blackmail you or something is bad. To literally do it at the across the barrel of a gun is just quite a look. <sighs> and then she takes the woman in the case to police headquarters where there's uh, some humorous banter, allegedly humorous banter with McBride. McBride comes out and is stunned to see the uh, woman in the case there. And then, now don't you go putting this in the paper, Torchy. Oh. And then she opens up the window and uh, one of the paper boys is already out there yelling, extra, extra. Torchy brings in the woman in the case. I want to note that, because um, I don't think we expressed this, you know, just zooming back a little bit. Gahagan, whose diary gets stolen by Torchy and used in her news, he is destroyed by McBride. Basically calls him a fat buffoon, you know, and he's just left rambling and devastated, <laughs> like King Lear or something. Like, he's just, he, and I don't, I don't remember seeing him again after that in the movie. He is just kicked in the teeth. 
by McBride after it re- is revealed that it was his blunder that allowed Torchy to have access to the case. So there's a real human cost to some of this nefariousness, and its name is Gehagen. A moment of silence. <laughs> we love Gehagen. That's not right. You, you would, after Gehagen gets exposed as the source, he writes a poem in his diary. <laughs> I'll read it for the class. The poem is as followed by one Thomas Gehagen. Is his name Thomas? I don't even know what the hell his name is. It doesn't is. even matter. We don't know what Gehagen's Christian name. There was a girl named Torchy Blaine who yearned to have a Newshawks fame. Her craft of guile and breaks was blended, but now her psychic scoops are ended. Do you miss, like, the newspaper boys who'd go around yelling the headlines? Have you ever thought about hiring someone to go down the street yelling insider headlines? Well, King, you just do it for me for free? Ten things Costco employees don't want you to know. (laughs) (laughs) Extra, extra. Only if you wear the little outfit, too. (laughs) Shouldn't be talking about your sexual fantasies on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's R-rated. We're just... (laughs) You get a little bit too personal. (laughs) My stars. (laughs) Also, no. Oh, God. Every night you make me dress as a newspaper boy, you extra, extra, Anya gets a big scoop. Oh, God, Kevin. I'm not one of those newsies groupies. Newsies floozies, I should say. You're ridiculous. You're a ridiculous <laughs> human being. Jesus Christ. Should we get to the, the trial? First, I just want to, you know, to, to show how innocent Gehagen is. You know what he calls his meal? His, his meat, he's, he talks about oh what what I did last night. He says he ate a hamburger and onions. <laughs> Torchy should not be doing anything to this poor man. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's get to the trial. But let's just say I think the tr- I think we, we've described some bad bad acts by Torchy for sure. Like pretty pretty bad. It's gonna get even. It's gonna get worse on top of that. And I think it's gonna leave everybody you know, including Kevin and I, just like. There's a character who's a hotel detective at the beginning who's just like he ends the scene by glowering and muttering reporters. <laughs> I think that's how we're all gonna feel when we tell you about the trial. So the hotel detective who was muttering reporters reminded you of me. Oh yeah, you are the hotel reporter who the whole the hotel detective muttering about reporters. That's basically what you do whenever I tick you off. So Torchy has a sign made. That says women's restroom or ladies' lounge. Yeah, what do you th- do? You think the guys who made that sign were like, "Huh, what, what, what's this for?" And I was like, "Oh, never mind. Don't worry about it. Just gonna what? lose my old shadow." Hmm. And then they're like, "We're not even gonna fucking ask." <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what does Torchy do with this sign? Tor- okay, so basically, what you have to understand is that Parker, one of the detectives, has been assigned to tail Torchy. Which, again, we're, we're we're glossing over the fact that like. The police chief has assigned one of his detectives to follow around and harass a reporter. And that's not, again, that's not even, like, at the top of the crazy shit that's happening here. Um, He does that, and in order to lose him, she places the sign over a conference room 
that she slips into. So he thinks she's in the women's room. This is a conference room of lawyers who are working the case and discussing the case. The DA is there. She's like violating all sorts of attorney-client privilege, all sorts of things. She shouldn't be in there. It was really embarrassing. She's like, I want to do a profile about how DAs are humans do. And the DA is like, get the fuck out. (laughs) She leaves through another door. Yes. And then there's a comic scene where the detective who's following her sees all of these men walk out of the women's restroom. And then some guy looks like some one of the lawyers looks around and like is furious and is like someone thinks this is funny and like throws it on the ground. It's like okay, let's all just calm down here. I don't remember this at all. Torchy called in a bomb threat. Oh, I was <laughs> no, I was joking because there's a scene that's funny though, and it's that kind of movie where like that could have happened. Yes, things were going to that point. There's a, there's a scene where Torchy is talking with the detective who's tailing her. And he's like, she's like, I'm going to lose my shadow sooner or later. And I was like, she's going to call in a bomb threat <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of this guy. She's going to hire someone to set off some like sh- shooting sounding recordings. So the cop's going to run and he's, she's going to be able to go and do wreck whatever <laughs> chaos she can. But then... It somehow gets worse. Because what is she doing, Kevin? Is she going to go outside and track down a last-minute clue to prove somebody's innocence? Or is she going to go interview a source outside of the courtroom? Well, what's so important that she had to get away from this tale? She sneaks into a supply closet that's apparently right next door to the jury room. (laughs) (laughs) And then she eavesdrops on the sacred and secret jury deliberations, which no one is supposed to hear. Not even the the parties in the case. Not even the judge. Not even the attorneys. Nobody should hear what happens in the jury room other than the jurors. Certainly not when it's ongoing in the middle of a trial. Twelve angry men, dot, 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 and a Snoopy blonde. So she's like reporting. She hears them say, oh, we're 11 to 1. We're deadlocked. So she goes, phones that in. Meanwhile, keep in mind the whimsical music at this point is just going nuts. It's blasting. It's in your ears. You can't hear yourself think. The whimsical music is just crazy. I feel like the whimsical music was like some like, like Lovecraftian, like evil god that would come down and just make everyone act totally crazy in this movie. That, that's the effect it seemed to have. So then the judge says to his, his bailiff, I guess, I'm going to go out uh, for a break. For like a half hour or so. Also, can I ask, the judge is all pissy because the jury is taking six hours to deliberate. Is that even real? Isn't that like normal? Part of the job. Yeah, isn't that normal? But would he be like, oh God, I can't believe I'm late for my golf game. Like, why did you schedule something? What are you doing? You're a judge. It just struck me as odd. You walked out. I don't think. <laughs> I walked out with the judge. We marched out together. Trying to get uh, cozy up to him for a story. <laughs> we had to have a long talk after so, this. So in your, in your version, I somehow walked into the movie. It was a Purple Rose of Cairo situation. Oh my God. <laughs> so he's, he's going to be out of pocket for like half hour or so. Second he walks out. He's apparently going to go lecture some other middle-aged man about how important the jury system is and how important secrecy is, I'll add. Second he walks out, 
the jury reaches a verdict and Torchy in the supply closet gets this information, phones it in to her, her desk. Maxie. And then the detective who's been following her, she sees him suddenly appear. So then she fakes another call in which she says, oh, guess what? The jury's verdict was actually guilty. She fakes a call to be overheard saying it's not guilty. The detective then calls the chief to tell them this. And the chief immediately, of course, contacts the express. And so then as the judge returns from his stroll, uh, talking about the secrecy of the juror system, uh, two extras appear on the street. One Torchy's paper says guilty. The other one, the express saying not guilty. The judge is outraged. He's pissed. There'll be hell to pay. I, has ha, As far as, you know, we both follow crimes somewhat. As far as you know, Kevin, has there ever been a case of a reporter spot, like literally spying on the jury like this? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I haven't heard of this either. This is a new one. New one on us. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this whole trial would have been thrown out. This would have been a mistrial, right? Yeah. Yeah, not even a close. But, but somehow it's not. They just say, all right, that happened. What's the verdict? Verdict is guilty. And then Torchy is hauled before the judge, thrown into jail, contempt of court. Would that happen? Sure. Sure. That'll Judges happen. have a lot of discretion. Okay, judges can do whatever, and also, this would be a mistrial. I, I think you, you could probably get her on more serious charges than contempt of court. Hit me up. What are the most, what are the serious ones? Uh, she's interfering with the legal process. Uh, obstruction of justice? Yeah, obstruction of justice, breaking and entering. Yeah. It's a hot mess. Certainly tamper with some witnesses. She definitely she does witness tampering every fucking movie. That's just like what she does for breakfast. So then she the man has been convicted. Uh she's in jail. Steve comes to visit. Tell us about that visit. Well, first of all, so you know, you think you're watching a mystery film that the conclusion of the mystery might be like, you know, the climax or like maybe even on screen. <laughs> but uh Blondes at work does things a little differently. So the he gets let into her cell and they hug and schmooze and whatever. And um, he explains the end of the mystery. He explains, he first of all explains that she'll be in jail until the new trial is over. And it comes to light that he, I guess, tracked down Louisa after Mr. Greer, the mustache man's trial, and got her to confess that she actually stabbed the retail exec, because he was about to kill Greer. Self-defense. And he says, don't worry, it's going to be self-defense. Yeah, because, like, 1930s juries were really sympathetic yeah. to that kind of shit. Um, <laughs> and, and but yeah, basically that sums it up. <laughs> and they, and, oh, 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 my God. Oh, no, I, I for, I'm, I'm hitting my mic because I forgot about this. I forgot about the big thing. So she's all sad. She's in jail, so she can't write the big story. But guess what? He hands her the paper. Her byline's already on there. Breaking the news that he just told her. He called in Maxie and gave the big scoop to the star. And then they put Torchy's byline on it. Is that how it works? Could I call up your editor and give him a scoop 
And then it would appear under your byline? Anya's stuck at the dentist, but I happened to look at uh, her email and uh, print it. <laughs> here's, the, here's the big scoop. I wrote it up for her, and they're like, all right. No. <laughs> I think they'd laugh me out of the joint. I think they'd be concerned about me. <laughs> they'd be like, is Anya there? Is she, is she okay? So, Anya's in prison, but don't worry. <laughs> no, everything's fine. It's all very whimsical. Why is she in prison? Oh, she tampered with a jury. <laughs> what? But do I got I got this Amazon story for you. Yeah, I got this big hot scoop on said jury. Yeah, it, it's just a. Uh, <laughs> that was an odd choice. I love this note you have uh, about the final meeting at the jail. It says shrug words, 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 and then the two guys tried to cover up with their own murders. <laughs> Yeah, basically, when you think about it, the end of this film is basically the turns out. So I I described the general strokes of it, but the retail guy and the mustache guy both agreed after the mustache guy stabbed the retail guy. They went off together because they didn't want Louisa to get hurt. And the retail guy just was like, I'm going to cover up my own murder now. I'm dying of a stab wound. I don't need to go to the hospital. I'll just die in my room. That's how people feel when they've been stabbed. Yeah. You're definitely pretty easy going about it. <laughs> hey, don't mind me. I'm just going to go die in my room. Sorry, lady. I didn't mean to bother you. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> and it's just like, you just like Steve, Steve McBride is like describing it. And you almost feel like the story is really set in like a mental institution. And he's saying, yeah, Torchy, it all worked out. Everything was fine. Uh, th- this is what happened. And Torchy, and then you're like, and I can't wait for your next scoop. See, I wrote it for you. And, like, it just was <laughs> Maxie printed a fake newspaper to, like, entertain her. And, like, she's had a breakdown and she's out in, like, I, Bellevue. I did think it was interesting that that final story that he called in that has her name on it, the paper is really wrinkled. And all the papers earlier that have borne her stories have been pristine. This is, like, the secret story where it's about... She she Nelly blied it too hard and now she's really in the mental hospital. <laughs> God. That whole indi- can you think of another movie where the climax happened off screen? Okay, I'm gonna say this, and I don't really have any specific examples to cite, but I feel like sometimes old movies do this. Where they almost like run out of room. Like they like 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 they're like It'll be like a, you know, they're going for a while. They're at a certain pace for better or for worse. And then suddenly the end is like, 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 like it just ends without much thought or art. I feel like this kind of happened in the episode where we, 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 um, uh, the Satan metal lady. Didn't that sort of end? Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. It sort of ended with like, and now she's in jail. But don't worry, give us some candy bars. And, like, that's it. <laughs> like, it's, it's like it's like somebody who doesn't know how to say goodbye to everybody at the party, so they just leave, basically. The Irish goodbye. The Irish goodbye, my old friend. And it's sort of, yeah, it just, it just feels very abrupt. It feels not anticlimactic. I guess the climax is her getting arrested at trial, but... You know, the movie obviously carries a lot more about Torchy than about the mystery. 
Yeah, a lot more about the antics. They're all about the... These are mystery films, police comedy films, police crime, you know, crime films, but they're truly crazy antic films. They're all about the antics, all about the silly moments. Yeah, the, the films are more an excuse to visit with Torchy and Steve and Gahagan than to tell a coherent, ethically uh, story. These stories are about as coherent as Gahagan's poetry. <laughs> Why is Gahagan even on the force? He's not that bright. He, he's a cop's butler, basically. Does he have to be bright? He has to drive them around and get stuff for them. So in the city, do you imagine that all cops have a butler on the force? Yeah. I mean, maybe they don't call them that, but... I mean, well, he is he's the head of the homicide squad, right? Yeah. Uh, McBride. So maybe... Squad leaders get a butler, a gentleman's gentleman. So do you think they should revive that tradition? You think? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't think that was a tradition. I think this is this was a movie written by like Hollywood types who never uh, don't understand journalism or uh, police work uh, or how life works. Typically, if you blow off your wedding like five times you're probably not going to get married to that person but these two crazy kids keep sticking together i guess we have to keep watching to see if they ever tie the old knot yeah mcbride every meg's torchy his bride i made that joke a lot i don't care sue me what am i supposed to do this is a torchy blaine film there's a formula they got what five more of these things yeah, I think it's gonna get weird because it's gonna—they're gonna replace Glenda Farrell. Glenda Farrell's great in this. I think she's she's just like such a good like wisecracker kind of, you know, like I'm like she gives off she exudes a kind of intelligence that the character writing does not deserve. But I think she's very charming. The guy who plays Steve is kind of a dud in my opinion because he just seems kind of like vaguely confused and annoyed by everything. And then Gahagan, what a gem! He's in all the movies, so I'm I'm happy about that. Do you think Hagen's a better match for Torchy than Steve is? Well, I mean, there's an age gap there, so I don't know. You know that means nothing. <laughs> well, I I think I th- I was just I think in earlier episodes I thought it would be more fun to like have a Torchy type with a more Hagen type because like that would be more of like an opposites thing. That would be fun, you know, and it would also explain why the cop would stay with the reporter even though they kept getting screwed over, basically, because they're just very whimsical, and their head is in the clouds. And the reporter is there to basically literally do their job for them and bring them back to Earth. You, you, like, with, with, a, with a McBride, he seems very dedicated to his job. He seems very dedicated to the Force. So you'd wonder why he would even stick around with uh, Torchy in the beginning of their relationship when this happened a few times and he got a few bad demerits for, you know, leaking. I've got a question. Yeah. Hypothetical. Okay. Warner Brothers gives you a big budget. Oh, fuck you. (laughs) They want you to reboot Torchy Blaine. Pitch me movie number one. I'd be like, how much cocaine went into this decision? Pitch me movie number one. Oh, I don't know. So is she Torchy Blaine for the modern era? I think she has to be. I don't know. Um, Does McBride have to be a cop? He has to be a cop. He has to be a cop. Does he have to be a law enforcement officer or can he be a private eye? He can be a private eye. Okay, he's a private eye. I think I'm going to do that. 
because then it would make sense why he'd be working with her, you know? Um, and, and it would erase a lot of the ethical considerations because maybe he, maybe he left the beat, maybe he left the force in disgrace or something. And now he's a private eye, somewhat successful. She's with him. They kind of have this love hate, but like actually cute relationship. Um, and, uh, I guess I would, I would really try to clean up her act. I would try to make her more ethical, uh, you know, try to make her daring and interesting and smart and, and sort of, you know, maybe pushing the envelope in terms of what's okay, but certainly remaining within the envelope <laughs> because I think otherwise modern audiences are media literate enough to see something and be like, that seems wrong. <laughs> so clean up her act, you know, keep the fun vibe. Make McBride a PI because I think him him on the force it just doesn't work. You can't uh, without the characters being kind of horrible, uh, which I guess you could do, but I wouldn't want to do. You know, I think that's that's a huge problem. Hagen's got to be in it. He's got to be some beloved older comedy person, I guess. So is Torchy like a savvy true crime podcaster? No, she's fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's just like a digital. She's she's like. She's like a girl who is at a once great like city or regional paper that is really struggling in this modern times. But she has a very like smart and like digitally savvy way of doing things. So she's able to get stuff really quick. And maybe her editor, Maxie, is a little bit freaked out by that because he's more of a print man. But she doesn't care, and and she also is getting them a lot of really good scoops. But she she's also kind of like fucking things up because it's like you know it's a staid old paper, so they're not really used to like pissing people off in a huge way at this point. But she's kind of bringing it into you know conflict with the powers that be in the city, so she's shaking up all sorts of shit. I dig it. I don't know. I that was pretty cliched, but I tried my best. <laughs> what would you add? I I think you've nailed it perfectly. Come on, give me something. So Steve is a PI in this situation? Yeah, he used to be on the force, but he left. Oh, was it a voluntary separation? No. Oh, I see. Maybe he got accused of doing something unethical. Maybe he's similar to her. He pushes the envelope. One time he pushed too far. Yeah. He left the uh, force under a bit of a cloud. Maybe he knows some. Maybe he knows where the bodies are buried and they don't like him because of that. So they're very similar, these two. They both do things their own way. Yeah. That draws them together. Now, who's Gahagan? Who is Gahagan? This is what I lie in bed and think about. <laughs> Who is he? Um, See, like, uh, McBride's partner got shot in the head and has brain damage. Oh, no, don't say that. That's <laughs> so awful. McBride feels a sense of loyalty to the guy. He, he says, oh, yeah, sure, you can drive me around. That, that contributes something. <laughs> Is he like some local like crazy like in, like insane person who like, like a homeless person? Yeah, like thinks he's a cop. No, that would be too terrible. How about he's is he still a cop or is he did he like oh mate I have what if he quit the business with McBride like thinking they'd be like partners but he's like really terrible at his job but McBride like doesn't have the heart because like he was the one guy who supported him. That works. <laughs> so he doesn't have the heart to be and like. Like, like, he doesn't do anything except, like, drive him around. <laughs> and, and he doesn't, 
And McBride, like, doesn't understand why he does this. Like, McBride was like, yeah, we could be partners, but for some reason, for some reason, Gage takes that to be like, I'll be your chauffeur. And, like, and it's really awkward. But he doesn't want to, like, make him feel bad. God damn it, that would be so sad. Oh, man. That sounds like a terrible movie. <laughs> I'd watch I think I think Torchy might have to live in her chaotic 1930s world. Do you think it works best as a period piece? Well, I don't I don't know if it works at all, babe. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be yeah, I think there's a lot to really like about the Torchy character. I got to tell you almost every time during this movie when you were actually sitting next to me and not walking out. Every time I looked at you, you, you were grinning from ear to ear. You <laughs> Well, I'm a big dumb idiot, okay? <laughs> So, Anya, what's your final unvarnished five-star final take on this picture? I think Blondes at Work is a piece of work! Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore and at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up hotmail accounts in the early 2000s. So all of those spell out two as T O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.